Blog Talk Radio. American Negro collectively is richer. And most nations of the world, we have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to prove we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. We have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community uh, in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer. The community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled, misguided, are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man. The man is becoming richer and richer, and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to, com- to complain about poor housing in a run-down community. Why, you're running down yourself when you take the dollar. We've got a strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here. Take out your insurance there. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a greater economic base. We've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. We've got to see it through. So our people not only have to be uh, re-educated to the importance of supporting black business, but the black man himself has to be uh, made aware of the importance of going into business. And once you and I go into business, we own and operate at least the businesses in our community, what we will be doing is developing a situation wherein we will actually be able to create employment for the people in the community. The black man must unite in one grand racial hierarchy, making a racial empire upon which the sun shall never set. He got by that pretext, and I want to take care of Hunter Tink Free, Hunter Be Free. Good evening, everybody. Glad that Hunter to tune in one more again to We Show, Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio. This year, the Queen Quet Head from the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. So glad they all are Hunter Chillin' to tune in all around the world to We Station. Well, every Monday, we the key upliftment to the living legacy and the pay ancestral homage. This evening, we're going to take a moment of silence for Madam C.J. Walker, Sister Magdalena Walker, S.B. Fuller, E.G. Gaston, Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. For all the hundred children, when I know who they're under, hundred going to get it at this evening, y'all. Yeah? So just stay tuned and think like that day and get Hunter Bound so the people and think for Chuck Dong thing where Hunter is getting me to crack my teeth boat so that Hunter can carry the shell back on up to the chillin for Hunter Lund the chillin. And what the chillin have for no? Hunter go half a lot of So look here. Hunter chillin this evening. We're so glad it one more again. At the Gullagichi Sea Coalition still sponsor this year broadcast and thing like that day. And if Hunter won't always crack your teeth with we or be part of who we to be, then go on to Gullagichi.net. Gwine on it to gullagichi.net. We thank you, thank you to all the 100 children who have been a follower upon Instagram and Twitter at Gullagichi. 
at Gullah Geechee, and Retta Wuss. All the hunter chilling with a following and the cracky teeth and the share, the reblog, and all that kind of thing. What did it at GullahGeecheeNation.com. We're so glad for all the hunter chilling with a share this year and hunter chilling with a right wing and thing like that. For see how inspired hunter the every week and thing like that. Now, if hunter the day yeah, and thing like that, yet it is your one more again this week. We say thank you, thank you. We still got the chat room open. If hunter want to come in here, you can go on in the chat room, make one free account at blogtalkradio.com, and then hunter chilling can crack your teeth right with we while we live. But hunter can always be where we otherwise to GU. L L G E E C O at AOL dot com. Gulgeeko at AOL dot com. We're so glad for all the hundred children were send me message from the Facebook and rather what's the one with email we because we know the one real serious what the email we most of the time and thing like that because it'll take it time out for truly put the thing in a business format. So that is what we were crack we teeth about this evening. Business format and economic empowerment this year. Black Our Story Month. Yeah? So we're so glad that Hunter Chillon stand Black History the 365, 366 for we. And this year the one that's 366 there. So we're so glad that Hunter Chillon did here. So for all my listeners that are around the world that continue this Black History Month celebration with us, you know full well this is not a month that we do this, and then we stop here at Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio. This is something we do all year long. And as Queen Quet Chiefess and Head of State for the Gullah Geechee Nation, who comes from people who are people of African and indigenous American descent, that doesn't change based on whether we are celebrating Native American Heritage Month or Black History Month, and then the next month I switch. It doesn't change that I'm a female, so when Women's Her Story Month is over, I don't switch to being a man. So all year long, this story is real, this story is relevant. The thing that I found very interesting about the evolution from Negro History Week to Negro History Month and Black History Month, African Heritage Month, has been the economic shift, especially within the United States of America, where many people no longer have Black History Month celebrations, especially in schools, because they think that they are in a, quote, post-racial America. So they were defunded. Also, people started using the term diversity. Once that terminology came into use, widespread, mainstream, somewhat trite, wrote use, then there was now this move to have a group of people where it could be 50 people, but as long as one was a woman on there and one was black, they would consider the group diverse, and now diversity celebrations started happening as opposed to specific cultural or racial celebrations in many communities and especially in academic centers. This then led to an economic shift away from funding for history materials that might be considered black history materials, a shift away from the funding and support for Africana studies classes that people fought for during the black power movement, the civil rights movement. Here it is that we are in a time frame where that really wasn't that long ago for the shifting of funds to be removed from it. And then people then had no reason to have to teach black history. 
Well, interestingly enough, let's break down the U.S. a little further and let's come to my home state of South Kakalaki. There is actually a law on the books in South Carolina that says that black history must be taught in schools. But it goes no further than that. So it doesn't say what needs to be taught. doesn't say how much needs to be taught. So some people meet this by simply saying, well, during February we had an assembly. No essays written, no compositions, no nothing. We had an assembly. Or I had all of the students read Tom Sawyer. There's a black character in there. Or we read a Langston Hughes poem. Or I let them listen to the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King, which is the palatable speech amongst all the speeches that this man wrote. God bless the dead. This outstanding work he left us with, why we can't wait. No one tends to sit and then read through the things that this scholar left. But so you heard his voice. The Dr. Martin Luther King's voice, you heard it entering the show tonight. You've heard it on the air here before, if you are a regular listener around the world. You heard El Haj Malik Shabazz or Malcolm X's voice. You heard also the voice of Marcus Mosiah Garvey, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. All different people that if you are not astute in studying their lives for yourself and reading different manuscripts, about their lives and the intricacies of these three men and also the parallels of their growth pattern, you may be inclined to say, well, wow, that's an eclectic mix. I'm, really? That was the three of them. What? I mean, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both saying something that sounded alike. That can't be possible. Yes, it's possible. Also note, all three of these men were killed. Now, I know someone will say, oh, but Marcus Garvey, say he died or something. Right, and there's always been a cloud over that saying he was poisoned. And we all are well aware that both Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and El Hajj Malik Shabazz were shot in front of people, openly massacred, killed, assassinated. And so... Here it is that one would still ponder and wonder why would people do that? Oh, people are just evil. Oh, there's spiritual wickedness in high and low places. Oh, you know, they were trying to help the black people. and White people just don't want us to be helped, and, and, and they just wanted to hold us down. And Well, also Bobby Kennedy and JFK were shot and killed during that time frame. They weren't black. Okay, so let's go back to what the real connection is. The real connection is in that simple two and a half, slightly over two and a half minutes worth of information. They each came to a realization that no matter what laws they were fighting for, especially in the case of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and civil rights leaders or what's now people of the civil rights movement as it's deemed, that you can have all the legislation in the world. You really don't legislate morality amongst people, but what then gets beyond most people's manner in which they look at race, which race is a construct, it's a constructive thing, is when there's economic empowerment. And when there's economic empowerment, you can have economic developments within your own community. When you have the power to economically empower yourself, 
you can empower others in your family and in your community and therefore have the types of institutions, the types of housing, the types of businesses that you would like that are reflective of your community and your culture. And no one can say, quote, unquote, take it from you. I know some of you are thinking of Rosewood and you're thinking of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you're thinking of Wilmington, North Carolina. You should be. But technically, someone could burn something down. They still don't take freedom from you. You build it back. And now you realize that if your town is under attack, you need to do what the deacons of defense realize, and now you have a vanguard of people to protect what you put up so that you maintain it. There are numerous towns and cities that were built and that burned down over the years. In the black community alone, there are numerous churches that have been burnt down, not just from the outside, but from people in the church themselves that burnt their own institutions down because somebody couldn't agree with somebody else. And so here it is, and I know that's a sin and a shame, but that's a topic for another night. But here it is that those institutions are back in place on the same ground where many of them had been burnt down. And when people do their anniversaries, their church anniversaries start with whatever year that congregation came together before there was even an initial building that got burned down. So it's, again, about the will to survive in the people. I use that terminology from a documentary, the first documentary to have the name Gullah Geechee Nation in it, The Will to Survive, the Story of the Gullah Geechee Nation. Outstanding work done by who? Emars Communications, which is a black-owned company that is based in Chicago that now is defunct. Unfortunately, many of the people's companies that I'm going to talk about tonight follow suit. They're defunct because over time, People couldn't see the vision that the founders had, an economic crisis and climate as well as technological advances causes shifts that people who they left behind to take care of things could not shift with it, could not keep it going. Or the owners decided, well, we're okay now. And instead of going through yet another recession or going through another battle to hold on to this, maybe we'll go ahead and, as you know, you say in poker, we'll fold. So I'll fold now. I'll go home with what I have instead of sitting here and playing to the end until I lose it all. So it's interesting that in the black community during Black History Month, people want to look at entertainers. They want to look at entertainment. You do that all year long. At what point do we revisit these points of black economic empowerment. Now Black History Month has become a tool for sales. I remember the years that beer companies started putting out black history posters, and then they started funding festivals and things in the black community and expos in the black community so they could expose the black community to products that were detrimental to the black community, alcohol, cigarettes, and the like. Now here it is that we stand at another point in time where you have Anglo-run chambers of commerce that are behind what can and cannot be done at festivals that are supposed to be cultural festivals related to people of African descent. And if the people who are on the committees running them or that are in these institutions don't adhere to what they're told, they don't get financial support. Another flip side of that is 
Well, if they show their independence and they show that they can still have success with or without these individuals, a lot of times these individuals come back to support them, but then find that the people do not have the professionalism and the economic understanding to properly manage the funds that they bring in through their own festivals that they were still able to carry on with or without these outside funders and without the strings attached. And many of us, unfortunately, have taken these strings, turned them into ropes, and are now hanging ourselves economically because instead of working together, we're trying to work away from one another and trying to go a-begging in other communities. I just had a conversation with someone in my family yesterday about a longstanding institution that has had an event going on for now 33 years. It'll be 34 coming up. And one of the elders stated how every single year that that event was going on when she was working, she was out begging for funds to put it on at different places. And finally, an Anglo man just said to her, okay, when is this going to stop? And she was like, what? He said, yeah, when will the begging stop? Interesting that that conversation happened during my lifetime and the conversations and the words that were left behind by some of the other people I'm going to talk about tonight happened prior to my lifetime, even though some of them lived into my lifetime. They were here before I got here and lived to be elderly. And one of these people I want to start off with tonight because I just finished a book about his life, which is called S.B. Fuller written by Mary Fuller Casey, which is his daughter, his eldest daughter. And S.B. Fuller is considered a pioneer to black empowerment, economic empowerment, and black economic empowerment. And many people that I've mentioned his name to just over the past few days have said to me, you mean full of brushes? You mean full of products? And I'm like, full of brushes? It's not full of brushes. It's full of products. Oh, but the full of brush man used to come door to door. And um, I was, what about him? And I said, what about him? I asked you, did you know the owner of the company? Did you know that he was a person of African descent? Did you know he was a black man? They said, you got to be kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not kidding that there's a black man that owned Fuller products or Fuller brushes, whichever one you might remember. And please email me and tell me if you and your mama didn't remember the folks coming door to door selling Fuller stuff, vacuum cleaner brushes, makeup, soap, and these kind of things. Please email me to G-U-L-L-G-E-E. C-O at AOL.com. I just really am trying to survey my audience. I'd love to know how many other people knew of Fuller Products, but how many of you knew it was a black man that owned it? Well, listen to what this man says. We are poor. The reason we are poor is not because of God. We are poor because Father never developed a desire to become rich. No one in our family never developed a desire to be anything else. Fuller was quoted in saying this, and he was repeating what his mother had said to him. His mother had told him that God had nothing to do with them being poor, living in poverty, but that his father, their father, had never developed a desire to become rich. Now that is critical. Desire will is critical because here it is that S.B. Fuller is a native of Louisiana. He was born down the Gulf Coast. 
He was born to people who would share crops and did all the domestic-type work things and come out of enslavement. And so it's not like his family had just automatically had everything handed to them or anything like this. But yet he managed to literally walk out of that, literally walk away from that type of environment, made his way to Tennessee where his father had been for a while, and eventually left there walking, and God sent a car with a white man in it that offered him a ride to Illinois. The man needed someone to help him drive to Evanston, Illinois, and S.B. Fuller was determined he was getting to Chicago, where his father and other people now were, and they were working in factories. But well, S.B. Fuller had left Memphis, Tennessee, because this man had been working selling dresses to his own people, and eventually the Anglo people or the white people said he had no business doing business because a Negro has no business doing business. So they sought to put him out of business. The sheriff came to threaten him and put him out of business, told him he needed to go work for somebody. So he literally left there walking because unlike father that his mother was talking about and everybody else in the family prior to him that hadn't developed a desire to be anything other than poor, S.B. Fuller was born with more of a desire in his heart. And this man only had a sixth-grade education. But bear in mind now, sixth-grade education back in the 1920s and 30s was almost equivalent to what a 12th-grade American education is today from what I've seen from all the older people that I know throughout the Gullah Geechee Nation and their literacy skills, their mathematics skills, and they went only to 6th grade. It's equivalent to 12th grade today. So it's very interesting that it was civil rights people that did not listen to what S.B. Fuller was telling them. He advised them to buy the bus companies when the boycotts were going on. And this way, they would own the bus companies, and then their own people could begin riding again. They could also employ their own people. This would be another means of economic empowerment and empowerment, period, in the black community. But the civil rights leaders were too tunnel-visioned or just didn't want to listen for the ego that they were the leaders and he wasn't the leader in their movement, even though he was investing money in things that people were doing, and they did not take his advice. I found the same thing to have taken place when I read a book about A.G. Gaston. And you heard mentioned at the opening of the show by Dr. King how you should take your money out of the banks downtown and go put it in a specific bank. Well, the specific bank that he was mentioning was one of the numerous, quote, Negro banks or black banks that was open during the time of the Civil Rights Movement. We just recently, and if you are Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition Facebook fans, you saw the posting that we put up of Killer Mike and the cash mob, and I mentioned that here before, in Atlanta, that they went down to the black bank in Atlanta and made deposits. They went as a group this month in celebration of Black History African Heritage Month. They get it that there is an understanding that you need to now have about black economic empowerment that was overlooked by Dr. King and some of the other leaders that came out of Atlanta in the past. So now here it is, a generation of people who are in the entertainment industry who have the disposable income to have bank accounts have decided to invest 
in the banks that are owned in the black community. We still have such banks in some of the cities like Savannah, Georgia, here in the Gullah Geechee Nation as well. But there are not as many of those banks open now as there once was. Once again, you also heard Dr. King mention that there are black insurance companies or Negro insurance companies and that you should take out your insurance with those insurance companies. Well, one such person that owned a major insurance company was A.G. Gaston, and I recommend you read the book Black Titan. This book, S.V. Fuller's book, which is written by his daughter Mary Fuller Casey and Black Titan, these are all part of the Gullah Geechee Alke Bulan archive as well. And so we have a whole section that is consistently growing on black economic empowerment because there are so many places that we've documented in video now of having gone to visit some of the places that some of these folks own. And then as I've read books, I was all geared up to do new trips to new places and found no need to go because these people's buildings were no longer standing, like in the case of A.G. Gaston, who was Arthur George Gaston, and S.B. Fuller, by the way, is Samuel Fuller, and so, but he's known by S.B. And Arthur George Gaston was actually born in and established a number of businesses in Alabama, Birmingham, where I visited, and I was in a state of shock to read about him many years after having spoken in Birmingham or visited Birmingham and spoken in Tuscaloosa and have been to Tuskegee numerous times. In fact, we digitized yesterday the Black Environmental Thought video from many years ago when I spoke in Tuskegee. And I just recently mentioned that event to someone, and here it was that it was divine order that a day to two days after me mentioning it, here comes this video out of the stack to be the next one to be digitized. Well, here it is that the institutions that should have remained in the community are the buildings that were owned by men like A.G. Gaston and S.B. Fuller. These should have remained. The Regal Theater in Chicago is an example of what S.B. Fuller once owned. These places should have been enshrined for us to be able to visit today, to actually see the economic strata to which our people had risen. We should be taking busloads of children to these places because there should be summer camps on empowerment, economic development, and business ownership, entrepreneurship. We know that there's a lot of talk about it from some of the people that are out here who are already entrepreneurs, who do sessions and things like that, but how much of our community is really taking hold of it. And a lot of information is even online for free. You can watch YouTube videos and get inspired. But again, it's about will, it's about desire. If you have no will, you have no desire, it is of no consequence and no benefit. It's just like if you have money, where is this money going? What are you doing with it? A.G. Gaston stated that money is no good unless it contributes something to the community, unless it builds a bridge to a better life. Any man can make money, but it takes a special kind of man to use it responsibly. And so it's interesting. When we start to talk about economic empowerment amongst the Gullah Geechee, this issue of using money responsibly is critical because, you know, 
people would always just say things in proverbial ways here in the Gullah Geechee Nation. The elders would just tell you things that was kind of common, you know, is put something away for a rainy day, that kind of thing. Have something to fall back on. You know, you don't spend all that you got. You don't eat everything one time. Save some for later. Simple things like this that really had a great deal of depth to them. And meanwhile, while Hunter Chilambina used Motherwit for Lunwi, plenty of us never grasped what the elders were saying, never lived out our lives in the manner in which we've been taught at home, but then got assimilated by instruction in other people's institutions. And as a result, thought that as soon as you get your hands on the first $100, $200, then instead of committing to the goal that you initially had, which was to improve the lives of your people and your family, improve the household you have, the building you have, the land that you have, you instead go to somebody else's store and buy a pretty suit or a car, a nice hat, a new pair of shoes. Not saying you shouldn't have nice things. Not saying you shouldn't get dressed up. I can dress up with the best of them. I come from a family that, yo, you can cut them. That's how sharp they are when they get ready to go somewhere. But they also own land already. So the thing is, where is your investment? Where is the money going? Come from a legacy where my grandfather owned his own store. One of very few men on my home island, black men, Gullah Geechee men, that owned a store during the 1930s, 1920s and 30s. He owned his own store. He farmed. He also went on the creek. So, again, it is about the vision of the man wanting more than to be poor. What did he instill in his children? Every generation subsequently in the family has always said to do better than the last. They push us to say, y'all got to do more than we did. There were certain things that were literal barriers for us getting into banking and investing in stocks, bonds, and other things, but that barrier doesn't exist anymore because there was red line. If you walked in the bank as a black person, they'd walk you right back out. There was discrimination. There was segregation. You couldn't even go in certain doors. And in the black banks, couldn't afford to loan you but so much. The burial societies, the farmers, co-ops, the things, they could only give but so much, and many of them collapsed because too many people thought they could borrow and never pay their bill back. So what is it that you can create? What is it that God has blessed you with? What is you, What room is your gift making for you that you can do something to benefit yourself, sustain yourself, but also be able to take care of your family? Because once you take care of your family, if everybody took care of their own family, you take care of the whole island, you take care of the whole village, you take care of the whole community, and by, therefore, Ultimately, today, we would say you're taking care of the whole nation, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, to Jacksonville, Florida, all these sea islands, and inland to the St. John's River. But if you're steady trying to find your way across the first bridge, across the first creek, to leave to go to somewhere else with your little bit of change, you're not being responsible. So you can make the money, but you're not that special kind of man or woman to use it responsibly if you don't see a way that you can reinvest it amongst your own people to uplift them. And so it's very interesting. When I think about it, a lot of times people will think, well, yeah, these quotes are often about a man because it was only men in business. No, the devil is a liar, as they would say in church. That is not the case. The quotes are often says a man because that's another form of assimilation. In schools, we're taught to use man or he as a default word. 
and males use men because they tend to talk about themselves and others of their gender. But there were women that were outstanding women. And when we start talking about the banks and the black banks, you should never forget Maggie Lena Walker, okay? Critical person. And she said, if a solution isn't enduring, it's not really a solution. If a solution isn't enduring, it's not really a solution. And at that time, she was even talking about automation and that there had to be enduring systems and solutions that become standards in their own right, and we've seen that. But if we just apply to our life the very first part, if a solution isn't enduring, it's not really a solution, then we have to look at when we tell our kids just go to school and just get an education, but then you don't tell them what you do with the education after that. You don't tell them that you can then use your education to bring it back to your community to be able to help teach others, train others, and then own their own businesses, and then everybody will have their own money and also be able to build generational wealth that they can pass on to the next generation. And if there's any critical time that we need to teach that, it is Black History Month. If you don't take any other time a year that you own a business and you're a person of African descent to go ahead and mentor somebody, go ahead and do a workshop for free to teach somebody else how to own a business, the pitfalls as well as the glory of it, then I don't know what what you're doing with yourself. I don't know how responsible you are as a person. And I definitely don't see how you could be, as they used to say to us, quote, a credit to your race, end quote. But I must say Maggie L. Walker was a credit to her race and gave credit to people of her race. She was born in Virginia. And I heard of Maggie Lena Walker because of my work with the National Park Service and because I go to Virginia, to Richmond, Virginia, to an African-owned hair salon every couple of months, have been going to the exact same hair salon when it was in New York and when it moved to Virginia for over 20 years, have seen this go from an apartment in the Bronx to a storefront space on the main drag in Richmond, Virginia, right next to the convention center, to a space double the size on the same main drag but two, three blocks further down in Richmond, Virginia. I'm sure the contribution that I've made has been beneficial. I've promoted this business. I've asked for other customers to come there. And the owner of it is an African woman. She's from Senegal. And she stops everything when I get to the shop to let all the customers know just how long she and I have known each other and how far I would travel to come and still support her. I could have just as soon had people in my own family do my hair. There's a bunch of hairdressers in my family. But there's a bond, there's a relationship there, there's a foundation that's been poured there, and there's a consistency that remains there. And it's been a blessing to see the place expand, not just to having hair care products and getting hair done, but also having various African things, African attire and jewelry, and even costume jewelry is there too, um, so that people can come in 
they can make a, a range of purchases, and they can learn a number of things. I have even purchased Wolof language CDs from this particular place before, and I got djembe drums that are part of the Gullah Connections work and that travel with us now as we do the Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy World Tour, and we make that full reconnection back to the motherland. But I was able to obtain these things in America through this sister who is an entrepreneur, who her whole family has been involved in some level of hair, I found out, over generations. And so here it is that they built generational wealth, and she has brought her family into the country. And here it is that it's only a couple of miles away from her shop, and I must ask her the next time I see her, has she ever gone and visited the National Park Service site that's right there, that's not far from the Richmond African American Museum, that is free to the public, that your tax dollars pay for, that honors Maggie L. Now, y'all would say, well, okay, you would say a lot about her. You mentioned she's with banking and all that. But what's she got to do? Really? I mean, how is she connected to the bank? Well, she was the first female banker in the United States. And here it is. This is a woman of African descent. She was the first woman of any race to charter a bank in the United States. And her place of business is now a part of the National Park Service in Richmond, Virginia. When I went and took my family there, we were the only ones in there visiting. And this has happened at many historic sites that deal with black people. And this one's free. Now, these other ones that I've gone to, no, ain't cheap. It's an investment to enter many of them. But if you invest in those institutions, those institutions will be around for several more decades to be able to teach people our story, even when the people who initiated that story are no longer living. The people I've mentioned to you so far are no longer alive. S.B. Fuller, A.G. Gaston, Maggie Walker, they're deceased in the physical sense. But as long as we call their names, they live on. So Maggie L. Walker had her early education in schools, Magdalena Mitchell, and she later married a man with the last name Walker. She went on to take her education and use it in a way that could be beneficial to her community. No doubt this was within her because if you read about her life, you find that her father was said to have actually been killed. Her mother had, or part of the family, had been, her mother was was enslaved and had been an assistant cook to the Churchill Mansion of Elizabeth Van Lu, who was actually someone who was a spy for the Union, although they were in Confederate Virginia during the U.S. Civil War. So this is the kind of energy you're talking about Maggie's family being a part of. This is no doubt the types of things she grasped and understood that was around her, that was retold in her presence, because this is where Maggie and her brother Johnny were raised within that house. 
that house was right near what? The church again, another FAB, First African Baptist Churches. And the churches were the economic, political, and social center of our community. Nowadays, they're not generally an economic center. They're, we can count the ones that are, as they churches don't employ people on a mass scale in our communities, and they don't tend to own the stores and the other things in our community. They don't tend to have community centers where you can go to for functions and things in the community. Some churches, like many of ours on St. Helena Island, they do contribute to some of the nonprofits and to the library and the things that are in the community when asked. Or they have in their annual meeting a vote to say, well, we are going to continue our contribution again to this or that space, and then a check is sent off by the trustees. Now, how much those checks are, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. But I could say I doubt that there are ties on what the church's gross per year that end up in banks that are not any of the black-owned banks that I talked about earlier during the show, many of them that stem out of the Freedmen's Bank system. And, again, if you go to GullahGeecheeNation.com, you can type in Freedman's Bank, or you can type in Gullah Geechee slash Freedman's Bank and Bing or Google, and you can see other articles I've written and times that I've spoken about it here on the show. You can check the Blog Talk Radio archives here on BlogTalkRadio.com, or you can go to iTunes and begin to subscribe for free to this show and download the hundreds of other episodes of this show that already exist. And you'll see that we've talked about economics in so many ways before, and we've talked about the banks and the Freedmen's Banks, and we've talked about how economics leads to community empowerment and how people can then sustain land ownership through economic empowerment. And that's why it is critical to talk about these epicenters that we had at one point. The spiritual place was also dealing with your secular life because really your secular and your spiritual shouldn't be separate. You should be a spiritual being that at all times, everywhere that you are becomes a spiritual place. There should be no such thing as a secular and a spiritual and they be separate although those terminologies exist in English. And so in the Gullah Geechee community, that tends to be the way that we see things. That tends to be, for the traditionalists amongst us, the way that we were taught, the way that we see things. And if we see it that way, then we should live that way. You should walk that way. You should behave that way. You should talk and walk your walk and talk your walk. All right? People should see it. You don't have to sit up there and pontificate and articulate a whole lot of words. People can watch your actions and know what you're really about. And so here it is that you have Maggie L. Walker showing and proving what she was about and so that she was able to take what her mother did as a laundress, learn while she was in that household, go and use that as she went to Richmond Public School, public school, public school, and help her mother deliver and clean clothes to people. See how that's a business. Use what she's taught in school and then turn this thing around. She married someone who's a brick contractor. He also made a pretty good living. She then got involved with a a social group, a fraternal group, called the Independent Order of St. Luke. They then started being able to 
help others to take care of their families through that. So then when she was able to join, she was only 14 years old when she became a member of the Independent Order of St. Luke. Yes, she was married already. All right? And she, yeah, I know y'all said 14. Yeah, one four, fourteen, not 40. 14 years old. People got married back then at that age. People were responsible back then at that age. And so here it is, and this woman, because of the educational level, because she had vision, because she had understanding, because she also had family support, continued on. She became responsible for a number of different things within the organization, and she eventually became a delegate to the biannual convention for the top leadership position of Rightworthy Grand Secretary is where she got elected She at one of those conventions to that position in 1899. And she continued to hold that position until she passed away. What she did was she took from that independent order of St. Luke and used that name and started her bank, which was the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. Okay? And she served as the bank's first president. She published a newspaper for her organization called St. Joseph Herald. So in 1902, she went ahead and had the information published in there that she was the first black woman to chart a bank in the United States. And I guess at that time she didn't realize, maybe, that she was the first woman to have done that in the United States. And so later on, she served as chairman of the board when the bank merged with two other Richmond banks and became the Consolidated Bank and Trust Company, and which grew to serve generations and generations of people in Richmond. And so when you start talking about it, again, here's growth. She didn't stop at one point. She continued to grow. Well, there's a woman that some of us have heard her name often, but we think of hair growth. When we think of her, well, in fact, a lot of y'all think of hair straightening. But she said it was a hair growing product. The first black woman millionaire in America, Maggie C.J. Walker, who was born in 1867. So when we're talking about these individuals, we're talking about people who were coming right out of chattel enslavement. We're talking about things happening during the period of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, in the early 1900s, when they are successful when literally their lives are on the line for them attempting to be black business owners and much less to talk about economically empowering their own. But yet they did not back away from doing that like I see so many people doing now, that they back away from it because they say, well, I don't want anyone to think that I don't like other people if I just have black people in my organization or whatever. Are you kidding? If it's an organization to deal with women, you wouldn't expect men to be their chair in anything. So anybody else who has any any inkling of common sense shouldn't be offended by there being an organization that specifically deals with the needs of a specific group, even medically. Things have to be looked at according to different races and according to different genders because things manifest themselves differently in people. I know people say, oh, it's just a human race, but then there are nuances within it. Just like I love cats. There are varieties of cats. Watch any cat show that comes on TV, right? So with human beings, there are differentiations between us, and we realize it medically 
we realize it with DNA research, so then we should not get upset if there are organizations, if there are celebrations like Black History Month that are specific to a certain group. Just if the group says, yeah, you can come to some functions and learn about us, go and support and learn. And that would be the difference to overcoming a lot of the fear that a lot of people have. Now, I have no idea what you call that. I think it's psychosis, not fear. And any of my friends who are in the psychological arena, you're welcome. Again, email me to G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com to tell me what's the difference between it, fear and psychosis, when a black person is afraid to be in an organization run by black people. You can send that to me. I know a lot of y'all about to write me and tell me, you know, that is post-traumatic slave syndrome. That is a component. But I'm just saying in terms of those two terminologies, and some may say it's both. It is fear and it is psychosis. And the fear is brought on due to the psychosis. So here it is. You say, well, how is it that these individuals you're talking about did what they did at that time? And it seems like it's so hard now for so many of us to get things off the ground. Well, because a lot of times this was a segregated period of time, we helped each other. We lived in close proximity with one another. We weren't trying to escape one another. We weren't afraid of each other, locking each other out the house and all that. We worked together. But it also goes right back again. You have to have the will. You have to have the desire. You have to have that passion to be willing to do whatever it takes to make it. And so Madam C.J. Walker said, I got my start by giving myself a start. You see? I got my start by giving myself a start. And so she said, I had to make my own living and my own opportunity. But I made it. Don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. Get up and make them. Get up and make them. And so here it is that I'm not going to be remiss for one moment and skip it the readings we've been doing the last couple of weeks, and I appreciate everybody who's been putting comments on Facebook and the few of you who've emailed about the shows and so forth as well. And I appreciate everyone who went to GullahGeecheeNation.com and shared the blog about the broadcasts that have so far been on the air this month. But I do not want to leave out Carter G. Woodson, not only because I don't want to leave you hanging, so to speak, but also because it's so apropos to apropos to all of what we've discussed already tonight. So I want to spend these final minutes reading again from the miseducation of the Negro. And I'm going to go to Chapter 5 tonight, the failure to learn to make a living, which kind of brings us full circle to the quote I started you off with from S.B. Fuller's mama, as well as now juxtaposition that quote in your mind, to the quote I just said to you from Madam C.J. Walker. And now listen to this. Quote, The greatest indictment of such education as Negroes have received, however, is that they have thereby learned little as to making a living, the first essential in civilization. Rural Negroes have always known something about agriculture, and in a country where land is abundant, they have been able to make some sort of living on the soil, even though they have not always employed scientific methods of farming. In industry, where the competition is keener, however, what the Negro has learned in school has had little bearing on the situation, as pointed out above. 
In business, the role of education as a factor in the uplift of the Negro has been still less significant. The Negroes of today are unable to employ one another, and the whites are inclined to call on Negroes only when workers of their own race have been taken care of. For the solution to this problem, the miseducated Negro has offered no remedy whatsoever. What Negroes are now being taught does not bring their minds into harmony with life as they must face it. When a Negro student works his way through college by polishing shoes, he does not think of making a special study of the science underlying the production and distribution of leather and its products that he may someday figure in this sphere. The Negro boy sent to college by a mechanic seldom dreams of learning mechanical engineering to build upon the foundation his father has laid that in years to come he may figure as a contractor or a consulting engineer. The Negro girl who goes to college hardly wants to return to her mother if she is a washerwoman. But this girl should come back with sufficient knowledge of physics and chemistry and business administration to use her mother's work as a nucleus for a modern steam laundry. A white professor of a university recently resigned his position to become rich by running a laundry for Negroes in a southern city. A Negro college instructor would have considered such a suggestion as insult. The so-called education of Negro college graduates leads them to throw away opportunities which they have and go in quest of those which they do not find, end quote. Now, I did not want to leave tonight without those words because I have encountered people mired in mediocrity that think because they went to institutions who issued them a piece of paper or some purport to, because I haven't seen their diplomas, but I know the places that they said they've graduated from are definitely not ranked amongst the highest in the world or anything. It's not, say, difficult to get in or out of them. There are institutions that will give you a piece of paper solely because you pay tuition. It's like graduating people because before they used to at one point not only give everybody a diploma, some got diplomas and some just got certificates for attending and still got to march across the stage. So in some regards, some of the people that I've witnessed who Dr. Carter G. Woodson is talking about here are actually people who hold a piece of paper that really is a shame that the tree gave up its life for. And I say this because I've taught at some colleges, and I know the types of stunts that administrative officers try to pull to allow you to pass people through that are mediocre at best at what they're doing. And these people who get out will wave around, oh, well, I have a degree in something and then seek to oppress their own people by only seeking to have people who do even less than they do or know even less than they know, or at least if they don't know less, they'll know more and they can use them, but they can intimidate them. So then if they can intimidate them, the more intelligent person stays beneath and becomes the underling to the unintelligent, miseducated individual. I see this right now. This has been happening right now, right here, and it's time that it ceases. These individuals have no desire to empower a generation of entrepreneurs, especially out of a Gullah Geechee community where they think that Gullah Geechee people are ignorant by virtue of being Gullah Geechee, that we're not supposed to 
have the intellectual capacity to recognize what independence is when we are independent and self-sufficient. I see numerous people moving into our communities, living in buildings that people already have established, taking positions at institutions and nonprofits that have only remained alive <laughs> because of the Gullah Geechee community that kept it alive when it was basically on life support and down for the count or needed CPR. It was Gullah Geechee's that breathed life back into these places. And you have these miseducated Negroes that have moved in and then seek to damage the people who actually see the world from a different perspective, that do not see it as a world in which we should accept mediocrity in our communities, that do not see it as a situation where we have to go a-begging and a-borrowing from other communities, but can see that the land around us is a blessing. It is wealth. It is just the wealth that you have to go and pan for it like you pan for gold. We know we be Gullah Geechee anointed people. We know we are black gold, so therefore we know the richness that we have inside us. It is no longer like when our ancestors were brought over in the enslavement vessels and people were writing about us as black gold, but our ancestors didn't get to read it. We are that seed planted by the words, by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of people like Madam C.J. Walker, A.G. Gaston, Maggie Lena Walker, and S.B. Fuller, the people that would get up and work, get up and walk, don't just talk, get up and do something. And then when you are able to economically sustain yourself, that is true self-determination. When you can raise your own food and not rely on another man or woman to feed you, that is true self-determination. And that level of economic empowerment, that level of strength, we owe to our ancestors to show to the world. And so if there's anything that you've ever done before to honor the sacred places that we're supposed to be honoring this year for Black History Month, then honor the ground that our Gullah Geechee ancestors have walked on honor the legacies of people like those we talked about tonight, and especially honor the words and the legacy of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who took so much time and energy to educate the miseducated. This year, the Queen Quet head upon the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. Thank you, thank you for tuning in one more again to Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. Bless and power.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.